Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. All right, come on up, everyone. Find somewhere to sit. All right, good to see you. All right, I need three volunteers today. Who would like to volunteer? Okay, one, two, and three. Okay, come on and stand up here. Good, good. Got everyone? All right. So I have a, a reward for each of you, okay? A little granola bar. But you have to do something in order to get the reward, all right? So you have to jump up and down three times. Good. That was just for Gideon, though. I've got something different for you, okay? You have to spin around two times. Don't fall over. Okay, there you go. Good. So you get the reward. And you have to bark like a dog. Good. All right. There you go. You get your reward. Good. You guys can have a seat. Thanks. Good job. All right. Now, my volunteers each received their reward in a different way, right? They weren't all the same, were they? They had to do different things, right? Now, I want you to think with me, is that how God works? If the reward is, instead of a granola bar, if it's our salvation, if that's our reward, does salvation come to us in different ways, and we just have to try to figure out which way works for us to be saved? Is that how God works? Maybe some people are saved by being kind enough. Is that true? Maybe others are saved by doing well in school, and God will save you then. No? Maybe some people are saved if they give lots of money to the church. Or others are saved if they know enough Bible verses. All right? Or maybe some people are saved if they follow God's commands, if they follow his rules really well. Is that how God works, different way for each person to be saved? No, not at all, is it? No. Salvation comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? And it's the same for everyone. It doesn't matter who you are or what your background is or what you've done in the past. Right? It's the same for everybody. Salvation is through faith in Jesus. Now, a long time ago, there was a man named Abraham. Do you remember Abraham in the Bible? Do you remember hearing of Abraham before? Yeah. So Abraham had faith in God. He believed God. He had faith in God, and he was saved because of his faith, due to his faith, right? And then after that, after Abraham, God gave more commands to his people. He gave more laws, more rules for them to follow. You know what happened? Some people thought that being saved came through following the laws perfectly or doing all the right things by following his law. But today in Galatians, we're going to learn that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we were saved with the same faith that Abraham had, that that's been true forever that it's salvation is through faith, not through following the rules, following God's commands. We want to do that to honor God, but that's not how we are saved. And so people were confused by that. But just as Abraham was saved through faith, so too are we and everyone else. It's the same for everybody, faith in Jesus, right? And so, oh, I just gave it away. But who are we to have faith in? Jesus Christ, right? That's who our faith is in. Salvation comes in no other way but through Jesus Christ. 
All right. So thanks for coming up. Pastor Jeremy's going to come now and preach to us from Galatians. All right. Thanks, Pastor Jeff. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Galatians chapter 3. We will be in verses 6 to 9, Galatians 3, 6 to 9. I have, I'm sure, I know I have told this story before, but I want to tell it again to help us get in the right track. When my dad was diagnosed with cancer, he had a salivary gland under his ear, and there was cancer there. He fainted. And then he spent the weeks after that kind of frantically looking for all kinds of solutions, health, holistic healing. I mean, just he was frantic. He was freaked out. And I had just finished seminary and, you know, I was obviously talking to him a lot. And I thought, let's, I, I don't know why I thought of this, but let's read a systematic theology together. Maybe that will help you. <laughs> and so I think we read Grudem. And I don't remember if we started with this chapter or we got to it, the chapter on justification by faith. And my dad grew up in a godly Christian home. His grandparents were godly. I mean, he grew up in a godly Christian home, a good church. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday. And he had no idea of justification by faith. He couldn't define it. And I, you know, a few thoughts. I'm headed to the pastorate and was just about you know, I was looking for my first call, and I, I just thought, what a what a terrible thing the church did that they, that they didn't they weren't careful to help their people know this central truth of how we're saved in the Bible. Like he couldn't articulate it, and then also my dad bears responsibility and and so on. But when he saw in Grudem and then in Scripture, the truth of how we become acceptable to God. The, the actual detail of it, it changed everything for him. Peace and a calmness, a reassurance in God's kindness. A lot happened to him internally in dealing with the reality of cancer and all that he was going to have to endure and ultimately death. I'm not saying it made it easy or anything, but this truth changed it for him. And so I just, can you define justification by faith? Calvin says in his sermon on this text that he believes that scarcely one in 30 Christians can actually come up with a somewhat biblical definition of it. And he doesn't say that to shame people, but to call them to pay careful attention because this is the truth that's at the heart of how we're saved, how we go from sinner to saint, how we go from under God's wrath to under his mercy, how we go from bound to hell to welcomed into God's heaven, how we go from enemies to friends without Christ to being in Christ. This is it. And so pay attention. 
youth, I was thinking of you this morning. It's a particularly vulnerable time in your life. I'm, I'm thinking here you're, you know, teens or, or whatever, adolescents. I don't know what they call you anymore. Be vulnerable, not because you'll face less temptation as you old, but vulnerable because you have just a super heightened awareness of being acceptable to other people your own age. And to differentiating from your parents and no longer wanting to be under them like you have been under them. And that's all good and fine, but the temptation will be to move from out from under your parents and be appealing to your peers in sinful ways. And one of the ways to navigate that very difficult part of your life will be to know this truth so that you can go through it in a godly way, in a way that will be helpful to you, in a way that won't be as many of us experience, so difficult and full of sin. Because if you're justified by faith in God and you're acceptable to God, then you don't need so much the approval of people. And you don't have to reject your parents' authority in ways that won't be beneficial to you or to them. But you can wisely establish yourself. And so this is what Paul is getting to. This whole book is about this truth. But in the first two chapters, Paul went at it through his personal example, and then secondly, through the Galatians example. So almost personal testimony for the first two chapters, personal history. And having done that, now he's going to move into biblical history, especially the example of Abraham, which he'll take up for most of the next two chapters. So we're going to spend some time with Abraham today. Abraham was just made God's child by Abraham going, okay, your promise sounds right. I'll accept that. He had faith in what God said. And that was the forgiveness of all of his sins and the counting him as perfectly 100% righteous in God's sight. And then that blessing of salvation is given to all who have similar faith. And so pay careful attention to this truth, please. Luther says that if you know this doctrine, I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember the exact quote, like you know more than 10,000 popes. You know everything if you know this truth. I'm going to read verses 1 to 9, but we'll be looking mainly at 6 to 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father who justifies the wicked, 
you who sent your only Son, so that we who are sinners may be made acceptable to you, being counted righteous by faith. Please send your Spirit now, that our thoughts might be confirmed to yours. Our ways of thinking, our logic submitted to your gospel of grace, and that by it you may bring us great comfort. Teach us to hold firmly to this promise of eternal life only through your Son, your Son who reigns at your right hand with all authority and power forever and ever. Amen. All right, so some context here. Again, Paul, for the first two chapters, gives his life example in his ministry to tell us mainly two things. The gospel comes from God, not from man, and that any who teach contrary to it, who add anything to it, that they would be cursed. And so Paul's doing battle here. The summary of all of this is given in 2.16. Look there real quick. We know that a person is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's this doctrine contained in this one word, justified. There's two roads that are totally antithetical to each other by which we might attempt to become justified before God. Your works or Christ's. Your goodness or Christ's. And you can't mix those two. It's one or the other. It's either or, and only one is true. And of course, we're justified not by our works, but only by simple, weak faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And now in our section here, Paul makes a significant turn to looking at the biblical teaching with many biblical examples of this truth of how we are made acceptable by God, to God. And so, through faith in Christ, the law has no meaning for us. To be acceptable to God, the law has no application. It's only faith in Christ. So that's what Paul is trying to drill home to these Galatian Christians. Are they Christians? Are they in Christ because of their works or Christ? At the beginning of their Christian life, did they come to Christ by their goodness or just by faith? And so now he's going to ground that, particularly in the first very clear main example in Scripture of Abraham who was justified by faith, said explicitly. So in Galatians 3, 6, 9, we have these phrases. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So there's two parts there. Note that carefully. Abraham believed God. Abraham believed what God said to him. So you, you have the part of faith. You're entrusting your life to merely what God says is true. Okay, so do you believe that? And then that faith, lacking in yourself any goodness, any perfect works of keeping God's law that would make you acceptable to him, that faith in Christ is reckoned to you, counted to you, credited to you 
as if you always kept God's law perfectly out of a right heart gladly. Those are the two parts, faith in Christ and God counting your little faith as if you always obeyed him perfectly without any sin ever. Do you get those two parts? This is what it means to be justified. You trust what God says, that Christ's death and resurrection is sufficient, and you look at Jesus and say, I've got nothing in myself, God. It's only to him I cling. And God reckons that little, simple, childlike faith as if you are completely without any guilt forever. That's the doctrine. Now Paul goes on in verse 7. God's main promise of salvation comes to Abraham and it's described as all who are sons of Abraham get this salvation. And in verse 7 he says that it's only by faith that you become a son of Abraham. Not your hereditary descent, not, not your ethnicity, not actually being Jewish ethnically, but just faith. And that that promise then extends in verses 8 and 9 to all peoples, to all nations, no matter your descent, no matter your sex, no matter your income, no matter your IQ, no matter who your daddy or mommy was. The only entrance into the blessing of eternal life with God is to be a son of Abraham. And the only way to be a son of Abraham is to Believe what God says about salvation. That's it. Do we get that? Isn't it a delight? Aren't we free? You get to be Abraham's descendant, not because your mother and father were Jewish, but because you believe in the Savior promised to Abraham. Well, let's go back to Abraham. Let, let's, let's actually walk through this. But in order to do that, we're going to start in Genesis 1 and 2. So flip back. I want, I want to show you, try to expand your brain to see the, the goodness of God in giving you what he's given you. In Genesis 1 and 2, we meet man, Adam and Eve, without sin, right? Were Adam and Eve created sinful? No, they were created righteous. They had righteousness. They had intimate, loving, trusting fellowship with God. They, their supreme love and confidence was God. Why? Because they didn't have any corruption in them. They, they had a nature of truth and righteousness and purity. Now, was law given to Adam and Eve in this state of innocency and righteousness? Did, did they, was, were they told by God things that they must do and must not do? Yes. Right? The three must-dos are work, keep the Sabbath, and get married and have a bunch of kids. Three positives. And then there was one no, don't do, Right? What's the no? Kids, what's the no? Stanley, you know what it is? In the garden, what couldn't they eat? 
the fruit, right, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One no. And the no was a test of their loyalty to God. It was a, their keeping of the law wasn't to remove their sin and count them righteous. They were already fully righteous. Their keeping of the law was just to confirm them in their righteousness, to confirm them in their love for God. They already had eternal life. It was just to see if they would continue on in it. It it couldn't justify and remove their guilt because they didn't have any. So the law in Genesis 1 and 2 isn't given to forgive their sins and count them acceptable to God and give them eternal life that they lacked. It was just to continue them in it. Does that make sense? But in Genesis 3, everything changes. Now, one other thing in Genesis 1 and 2. You see the sweetness of their relationship with God. Especially in Genesis 2. Look at verse 15. The Lord takes the man and puts him in the garden. And Adam and, and, and the Lord here before Eve have this intimacy. God's talking right to them. Right to him. Telling him what he shouldn't do. Verse 18, God's telling him that it's not good that he's alone and that he's going to make a helper fit for him. They have this total relationship of trust and intimacy and love with nothing between them at all. Adam and Eve are, have no doubt of God's goodness a bit. It's nothing but goodness between God and man because man is righteous. And then in verse or chapter 3, Man, of course, sins. They sinned. They didn't continue in their righteousness. They didn't continue in this sweet intimacy with God and trust of him. They fell in sin. So they're corrupted. And, by the way, because all of us are descendants of Adam and Eve, we inherit that nature of corruption. We are condemned by our nature. We sin because we're sinners. We do unrighteous things because that's our nature, not via creation, but because of Adam and Eve's sin. Now, if you think that's unfair, let's just say you were created in innocency, being innocent and in righteousness. Would you maintain that? You got grumpy with your kids this morning over nothing. And God is holy and just, isn't he? He's righteous. He hates sin and sinners. He will not allow sinners into his presence. Because they won't honor him. They don't trust him anymore. They distrust him. Look at Adam and Eve. Compared to Genesis 1 and 2, look at how suspicious they become of God. Look at verse 7. They became very aware of their nakedness. They became very aware of their guilt. And they try to cover it with little fig leaves that cover their loincloths. And then when God comes into the garden, look at what they do. They hide. Why do they hide? Why do they hide? Because suddenly, they no longer view God as good and generous and wise and loving. They view him suspiciously. 
like a prowler. Their view of God has been radically changed by sin. They no longer trust him. They no longer think he's there to do them good. You, you see that? They're, they're totally distrusting of God because of sin. Of course, they're ashamed, but they once knew love and confidence in God, and now they're full of suspicion and distrust and guilt and dread. Now, compare that to what God's about to say to them. What do you think Adam and Eve expected God to say to them? What do you think they expected? Do you think they expected any kind of merciful kindness from God? No, they expected death. They expected God to erect a gallows and hang them on it. But look at what God says. Look at verse 15 or 14. God curses the serpent, right? He curses him with ultimate destruction. And then in verse 15, he speaks to the woman. And she's expecting condemnation. She sinned first. She's expecting obliteration. But what does God give her? A promise. There is going to be enmity between you, the serpent now, and the woman. Her seed and your seed. One of her children will be bruised, but he will crush the head of the serpent. They get a promise. Not a curse. Not eternal condemnation. A promise of salvation. They have no confidence in God anymore. No trust in God. Only distrust. Only suspicion. And God comes and blesses them with a promise of salvation. And then the very next thing God does, he does remove them from the garden because you cannot be in God's presence in sin. He closed them in verse 21. He calls Eve the mother of all the living. He blesses her. He clothes her nakedness. And so you end Genesis 3 with some hope in the midst of this destruction. But our relationship because of sin is eternally bent with God. We no longer, even you who are Christians, even you who know the love of Christ, don't you view God suspiciously, thinking he's kind of sort of out to get you. You've let him down one too many times. And so you, like Adam and Eve, kind of hiding, hoping he doesn't come and drill you. We're just like that because of sin. But you have this promise. This promise of a serpent who is cursed, of a child who will come and destroy all the works, and a people of God, a seed of the woman, a, a people blessed by God, a people chosen by God, a people to be redeemed by God. Not by law, but by promise. You get that? God didn't come to Adam and Eve and give them a bunch of laws to keep. He just gave them a promise to believe, a promise to hold on to. And that does bring us to Abraham. So turn over to Genesis 11 and 12. We have glimpses before Abraham of this promise being fulfilled. 
You have Enosh at the end of Genesis 4 and a note that people are calling on the Lord. That's a, a way to say that they're calling on God to save them according to his promise. You have Enoch right in the middle of Genesis 5 who walks with the Lord and he doesn't experience death. He's just taken right to heaven. Of course, you have Noah and the ark and God's grace and saving him just by his promise through the flood. But all of that is like the dawn of salvation. And at dawn, you see light, right? But things are still unclear. They're a bit hazy at dawn. They're beautiful. There's light, but you can't make out forms. If you hunt and you see a deer right at opening light, you you can't see it clearly. You can only see kind of the outline generally. And that's what you get before Genesis 12. Salvation is there. It's promised. We don't have a lot of information. We know that there's a son coming who will bring salvation, but the, the details of it were not given until here. Now, pause one second before we get into this. The reason that Paul brings up Abraham in Galatians, it, there's two reasons. One, Abraham is the clearest example. It just said so clearly of how man, sinful man, is justified. And second, the opponents in Galatia, the false teachers in Galatia, were lying about Abraham. They were saying that Abraham was like this godly, godly man who did all of these great works and God blessed him because of his godliness with salvation. And Paul just calls him, well, let's go back. How is Abraham justified by God? Who was Abraham before he was justified by God? Well, at the end of chapter 11, you see Abram is the son, in verse 31, of this guy named Terah. They live in the Ur of the Chaldeans. They're they're not godly. They're they're not following God. They're farmers who worship idols. He, He hasn't kept the law of God at this point. He hasn't been circumcised. He hasn't sacrificed Isaac. He He's got no record of righteousness. And then in chapter 12, God comes. And God gives Abraham a promise. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you and make your name great. And all the families in verse 3, all of them, all nations will be blessed through this promise. So that's the opening. Flip over to chapter 15 where we really see it. Oh, please don't miss this. This is like the happiest thing in the entire Bible. Don't be dull here. So, between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, there's likely a decade or so past. Abraham's wife, Sarah, is barren. She can't have children. And they're old. And so Abraham's beginning to be fearful that the promise of a son isn't going to come true. That's how it begins. God comes again to Abraham, fear not, I am your shield, I am re- your reward will be great. And Abraham says, oh God, oh Lord God, there's no kid. There's, there's no son. Well, how can you give me any of these promises? Verse 3, you've given me no offspring. Some distant relative is going to be the inheritor. What? 
What gives? I thought you made a promise. I thought I could trust you. He's wavering. Okay, so there's faith and light of it to commend him to God, right? Abraham isn't this rock-solid faith and light of it against any evidence. He's full of doubt and fear and maybe even accusation of God. And God comes, the word of God, note that in verse 4, the word of the Lord comes to Abraham and says, that man, your distant relative, will not be your heir, but your very own son will be your heir. And God brings him outside at night, looks at the numbers of the stars and says, if you can count them, so shall your offspring be. The one whom I'm promising to you will be so fruitful that his offspring will be like the stars in the night sky, in the boundary waters, not in a city. And verse 6 is the thing. This is the thing. This is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. This is what Paul is pointing back to from Galatians. And he believed him. (laughs) Okay. All right. He believed the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, counted it to him, that is Abraham, as righteousness. Is Abraham righteous? No. He's not righteous. He's a sinner. In fact, we'll see a lot of sin in his life even going forward. He's full of doubt. So what is the righteousness that God counts to Abraham? What does it mean to be righteous? It means to be without any sin, without any error, without any guilt. It means to be totally, perfectly right. With a right heart, by the way. Kids, you sometimes do the right thing for your parents, but you do it in the wrong heart. Grumpy, complainy, whiny. That's, that's not obedience. Right heart, doing the right thing. That's what we need to come to God. That's what Adam and Eve had before Genesis 3. Right hearts, doing things in the right way as according to God's word. Abraham doesn't have any of that. Where does he get it from? God gives him that. He credits it to him. He counts it to him. How? By Abraham believing that there will be one coming who will do the right thing in the right way with the right heart. It's the substitute of another. So, Jesus told a parable once of a servant who had an unrepayable debt to the owner, to the master. Remember that? And he begs and pleads for the forgiveness of the debt. And the man forgives him. What you're supposed to fill in the gap there is Somebody's got to repay the debt. Somebody's got to repay the unrepayable debt. We have a debt we can't pay of guilt. And we have no expectation for God of anything but wrath. We deserve it. But someone pays our debt. Someone not only cleanses our record, but gives us a record of perfect righteous obedience. It's Jesus. Abraham believes, before knowing the name of Jesus... That one will come who won't be at all like me, who will love God with all of his heart, who will love his neighbor as himself, 
who will do the right godly things in the, with the right godly heart, and his record of perfection will now be credited to me. By what? Faith. Believing. So Abraham, in this moment, is forgiven of all of his sins and is given a record of perfect, pure, untainted righteousness before God and so acceptable to him. That's what it means to be justified, counted right, before God by faith. So if we sum it up, the way I want to sum it up, so you, you, you got that? That's what Paul is saying back in Galatians. But the way I want you to sum it up is I want you to turn to Luke 15. I think in our pastor's meeting, Pastor Mark brought up this example, and I think it'd be helpful to you. So in Luke 15, Matthew, Mark, Luke in the New Testament, first three gospel, Luke, Luke 15, you have the parable of the prodigal son, beginning of verse 11. You're familiar with this, right? Hopefully you've at least heard something about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's become even like a, a thing in our language. We talk about prodigals, children who are wayward. That comes from this. So, so you have three people in this parable that Jesus is telling. You have a father, a wealthy, good, good, good father, an older son, and a younger son. And the younger son, we meet right away. He's very wicked. He's, he's very proud. He demands that his father, before his father's dead, give him all of his inheritance right now. And I, I'm very ungrateful. He doesn't want to be in his father's house anymore. It's not good enough for him. He's a very foolish young man. And of course, he takes the inheritance and goes, and in verse 13 at the end, squanders it in reckless living. He just lives like hell. He totally dishonors his father. And he becomes so destitute that he's eating pig's food, verse 16. And he finally comes to his senses and thinks, my father's slaves live better than I do. I'm going to go back to my dad. And I'm going to say to him in verse 18, Father, I've sinned against heaven and, and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as a slave. That's, that's a glimmer of faith right there. And so, of course, he goes back to the father. His father had been waiting for him, looking for him day after day after day. Verse 20, he sees him. The father runs out to the son, full of compassion, embraces him and kissing him. The son says, I've sinned against you, against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy of called your son. But this, the father says, bring my best robe. Bring wealthy rings, bring shoes, kill the fattened calf. Let's celebrate. My son was dead. He's alive. He's lost. He's found. Let's celebrate. <clears throat> the older son is out doing what he should be doing. He's working in the field. He, he's not aware of what's happened. And he sees the party, asks the servants, what's going on? 
Well, your brother's come home. He's been restored. Father's throwing a party. He's clothed him in all of the clothings. He, and the older son refuses to go in, refuses to share in the joy, but is ticked. He's got his mat on. How, how could the father do this? I've been loyal. I, I've worked hard. How can you just accept him like that? Don't, don't you know what he's done? Didn't you hear about how he's, what he's done? How he's shamed you? How could you? Now this parable was told to illustrate justification by faith in Jews and Gentiles. The father in the parable, of course, is God the father. The older son are the Jews and the younger reckless son is like the Gentiles. The older children, the Jews, lived in God's household. They had all of God's blessings. And they rejected it because God was gracious. It wasn't by their works. It was just by his generous grace. The younger son, who had lived like a child of Satan, who had taken all that God had given him and just ruined it, comes back. Knowing his, seeing that his father is gracious, is forgiven, is restored, and is counted as his son just by his act of help me. I need, I got nothing to give you. That's the truth. What does the younger son have to give the father? Nothing. He comes with nothing but a record of wrong. Nothing. He, he has no tricks to perform. He's got zero zilch, but offense. He's humble. He's weak. He sees his guilt. And all he does is come before the father pleading for his mercy. But the older son has stuff to give him. Has a record of goodness. He lives his life as if his relationship with his father is based on his goodness. He doesn't see himself truly. He's not that good. External deeds look pretty good, but internal, you can see it. He's full of jealousy and envy and bitterness. He doesn't want to depend on God's promise of salvation. And who's justified in this story? Who's accepted? Which one's a child of Abraham? Right? You got it? That's justification by faith. That's it. That's it. So, in the past few weeks, what I've been, we're back in Galatians now. In the past few weeks, what I've been trying to stress to us is that we need to retrain our brains to not be so suspicious of God. That because of the sin, we're wired to be like the older brother. 
because of sin, we're wired to be like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Our reason, our way of thinking will not confirm to the freedom of the gospel. We view ourselves only through the lens of, have I done enough today for God? We're very suspicious of God's good intent towards us. But the gospel isn't according to human wisdom. It confounds our human wisdom. Luther says that the faith like Abraham kills our reason where it won't submit to Scripture. Remember, Abraham, before God's promise, was a sinner. He had no goodness. He had no record of righteousness. He had no circumcision. He had nothing. He's got a wife who's old and barren. And you look at the promise God comes with Abraham and it totally confounds our thinking. Here, Abraham, here's eternal life. Here's a descendant who will bless every nation in the world to come. And he just gives it to Abraham. Even though Abraham has done nothing. Here, here's the inheritance that will make the wealth of America look like nothing. To a man who has done nothing for God. And, and we, like the older brother, look at that and say, how could God do that? How, how could God give a promise to somebody like Abraham? And, of course, the problem is, you're like Abraham. You're like the younger brother. We're sinners. We deserve nothing from God. We deserve hell. We deserve eternal wrath totally apart from his goodness. And God comes to us in Christ and says, here. Here's forgiveness of all of your sins. Here's my son's record of perfect righteousness. Here. Here's eternal life. Here's angels serving you. Here's the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Here's the church to aid you on your way to heaven. Here. Here. Here's copy of the scriptures, not in Hebrew and Greek, not in Latin, in your language, here. And we sit there and go, I gotta do, I gotta do, I gotta do. say, shut up, here. Just here. Just trust me. That's it, just trust me. And so how do you think about God? How do you think about him? Are you living as if Christ is the forgiveness of all of your sins? Or are you constantly just in slavish fear? Do you see that you are treated as his only son with love and care and protection? Because of Christ That's it. That's the gospel. And I think the thing is, some of you think that's a letdown. There's got to be more. What about all the laws in the Bible? Yeah, 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 yeah. Love for God will lead you to love his law and want to keep it. And that will include repentance when you break it. But your love for God is powered by God's first love for you in Christ. 
And so get over yourself. Get over criticizing me up here. Of course I know I'm not good. I'm better than you'd be probably. Why did I just say that? Because that's how proud we are. That's how proud you are. So go to Christ. One last thing. Why is it only by faith? Why is it just this simple faith? Because that glorifies God. It gives all the glory to God. Faith has to even be gifted you by God. And when you come to God, nothing in my hands I own, only to Christ I cling, that tells everybody it's all God. It's not you. And so God gets all the glory. That's why it's by faith. Praise God for it, huh? Let's pray. Father, teach us to fall down before your majesty of your goodness, acknowledging fully our faults, praying that you would make us feel them even more, and that you would grant us then forgiveness with true repentance, but also that you would hold us up, that you would work in us reassurance all of our life of your goodness, and that you will take us into your kingdom. And until that day that you will continue to reform us more and more by your Holy Spirit. To the end, God, that you might assure us in our hearts that we are numbered among your children. And out of that place of safety and security that we would learn to control ourselves, fearing you, but seeking nothing else but to give ourselves completely to you. And so God, teach us to look to you in this way and give you all the glory. In Jesus' holy name, amen.